you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. So as this Lord's Day, we've um, celebrated baptizing and bringing one of Christ's sheep into the local church. Um, Your pastor asked me to preach on the the topic of church membership and baptism. And um, I'm going to look at two verses here. And I want to, I've called it six marks of the Jerusalem church. There's more, uh, but these two verses, this is the basics here. And I think we we should return to the basics. Uh, Maybe you've been a member a long time. Maybe you're a new member. Um, maybe you forgot how to be a good member. <laughs> uh, we all need a good, uh, you know, reminder sometimes. So uh, this will be a very brief sermon, um, but I want to look at these two verses and to look at some of the things, some of the marks of the first early Jerusalem church, things that have continued for 2,000 years in every true church. Um, so um, let me give the context before I read the verses. So Acts 2, just think Pentecost, Okay. Um, so Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost. <clears throat> See, the Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven, and in our, this, this morning he promised to give his spirit in a powerful way. And so we see in the next chapter that exactly happened. The Lord gives his spirit in a very dramatic fashion. Um, the, the, the flames on the shoulders of the disciples speaking in different tongues. Um, and so <clears throat> his sermon at Pentecost, it's a beautiful sermon. If you think about it, like, how many sermons are actually given to us in the New Testament? This is one of the few ones. It's quite lengthy. Stephen's sermon is longer. That's another one that's given to us in Acts, um, one of Paul's, Antioch, Pisidia. So there's some that we have, and it's wonderful to kind of see an apostolic sermon for us. Um, maybe he said more than what we have recorded, but at least this is the Spark Notes version. Um, and he argues that the Jesus who had ascended into heaven... He, he, uh, he argues that this Jesus is the one who has given the Spirit. So he quotes from Joel chapter 2 in the Sermon at Pentecost. Um, and he shows that the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost is evidence that the Lord, Jesus, whom they had crucified just not that many days before, he is the one who ascended into heaven and he's the one who poured out the Spirit. The Lord Jesus does this. Um, that's one of Peter's arguments. The Messiah was truly man and truly God. And so Peter preaches this sermon, and then if you look at verse 37, here's the response of the crowd. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then we come to our text, which is verses 41 and 42. And this is... um, they're part of the response of those who believed um, to Peter's sermon. So Acts 2, 41 to 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so that's, the, that's what they devoted themselves to. So I have six points. They're very brief. Um, but there are six marks, th- six things that we should think about, and that I'm not part of your church, but things you should think about are, you know, us as two, two different churches here um, in, in becoming church members. So 
We'll talk about baptism, membership, apostolic teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Um, so I'll be brief, um, but let's look at these things. I hope that this is some, um, some food for thought. Um, we're not going to go into great depth here, but at least we can consider some things. So let's talk about the first point, number one, baptism. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there's actually a number of things we can unpack from this simple phrase about baptism. First of all, who were the ones that were baptized? It's very clear here. Those who received the word. Those who received the word were baptized. Only those who have received the word in faith should be baptized. And how many were baptized? 3,000. It's interesting he uses the word souls. He's just referring to people there. 3,000 people. How were they baptized? Well, we're Baptists. We believe the word baptizo, to dip, to immerse, um, to plunge is one translation. And so there's an argument, some say, there's not enough pools in Jerusalem to immerse 3,000 people. <laughs> and John Gill, in classic John Gill fashion, he has an entire page of places in Jerusalem that you could baptize people. Um, you could think of the pool of Bethsaida or the pool of Siloam. I just thought that was pretty funny. A whole page of places where you could baptize um, people in Jerusalem. Can you just imagine that moment, though, that day, that, that time when there are just 3,000 people are added? We know that they were, there were about 120 people before Pentecost, and then there's 3,000 that are added. And that's, you can think of what's going on here. Um, so anyways, your pastor stole my thunder because I was going to talk about the symbolism of baptism. Let me quickly rehash what he said. When, when someone is baptized, um, we see a picture of going into the waters of death and being raised again. So he mentioned the flood, the great deluge. Um, Noah and his family, they go into the ark. They pass through the waters of death, right? Uh, all the rest of the people, who, they were killed. They were judged. And through judgment, God saves his Noah and his family. And this connection is explicitly made in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. It's a very difficult passage, but my pastor, Pastor Sam, preached a sermon on that. Um, it's called Baptism Now Saves You. And if you want to listen to it, it's a very, very good sermon on that text. Um, but Peter makes that connection between baptism and Noah and his family going through the flood. And then, obviously, Exodus 14, that's a, it's a masterpiece of a text where Israel goes into the waters of, of the Red Sea and they, um, they pass through and they basically they go in the, in the darkness, they go down into the sea, and then as the sun rises, they come out of the Red Sea and God defeats his enemies. And this is another picture, or baptism is a, a, a completement or fulfillment of that picture. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate descent and ascent, right? Uh, Jesus died, he went into the grave, and then he was raised from the dead on the third day. I love it how the gospel authors mention at dawn, uh, with the, the sun rising in a sense, um, just like the Israelites coming out of the sea. And so, as we said um, this morning, um, he was raised from the dead on the third day, and then he ascended into heaven. And so when you're baptized, um, you enter into the waters of death. They symbolize death. Um, and then you're raised out of the waters, and that ascension symbolizes life. And it's a beautiful picture of how God redeems his people. The, the act of going into the waters and coming out never saved anybody, 
right? The actual act of it. They symbolize what God and what Jesus has done for us and our union with him. And so the church should baptize those who receive the word. And so should, so should you. This church um, should, well, you participate in it, um, but that is one of the marks of the early church is baptism. Um, and a beautiful thing is baptism, once someone is baptized, then the church can call them brother or sister, right? Uh, that's something that they can now say that they did not previously, or they previously could not say. They're part of the family now. And so those who received the word were baptized, and so should we baptize those who received the word by faith, repenting of their sins and resting upon Christ as is offered in the gospel. The second thing is membership. Look at verse 41. It says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The verb that they were added is used six times in the book of Acts. Four of those are talking, uh, speak of people being saved and being added to the current number of people who were Christians in that place, okay? Now, can we have a full-orbed doctrine of church membership from this one passage? No, this is one of those passages that speaks about membership, um, who is part of the, the society, the church, who is part of the local church. Um, we know, as I said earlier, there were 120. They were added to them 3,000. Maybe not all those people would have stayed there in Jerusalem. If you remember at Pentecost, there's Jews from all over the world, the, the diaspora. Um, so maybe many of them went back. But there had to be some serious organization going on um, when they added all these people. But we see that there were added to, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, they were keeping track as best as they could. Um, and so churches should keep track, right, of who is part of the church community and who isn't. Um, it's a very uh, primitive or simple idea of church membership, and the New Testament will develop it in the future. So as I said, one of the functions of church membership is to delineate who is a believer and who isn't? How do you know who are the ones who have received the word and to be included in the congregation? It's those who are added to the number of believers. So I'll move off of that to just some exhortations for us. What are some privileges and duties of being a member in a church? This is just review, but some things to think about. First of all, look at your text in verse 42. You actually can see some of the privileges of church membership right there, right? Uh, they received the apostolic teaching, um, the fellowship, um, the breaking of bread, which I'll argue is, a, is referring to the Lord's Supper, and then um, finally the, the prayers. And so those are some of the privileges. We'll talk about those but in just a minute. But as church members, you also have pastoral oversight. You have a shepherd that looks out for your soul. That's a wonderful privilege of being added to the number of believers. Also, your pastor prays for you, right? That's another beautiful, wonderful thing that happens as a member. Uh, you get to assist and participate in electing officers. That's another privilege of church membership that you get to do. There's many more things. And what are some duties? What should you be doing as a church member? Well, I'm just going to list them. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details very much here, but you're to submit to your pastor. You're supposed to treat your pastor with honor and love. You're supposed to take care of your pastor. Um, these are things I can say but maybe he wouldn't. Um, make sure you pray for your pastor. Um, you're also supposed to love your fellow church members. You're supposed to pray for them. You're supposed to remember that they are objects of God's love. 
Um, there's a, a, a book, it's called, it's called something about church membership, but it's by a guy named John Engel Jones, James, John Engel James, it's the John James words. John James, and this is what he writes. This is very good. These, talking about church members, should a believer exclaim as he looks at the church, are the objects of the Redeemer's living and dying love. And out of affection to him, I feel an inexpressible delight in them. I love to associate with them, to talk with them, to look upon them because they are Christ's. So as a church member, you're supposed to look at the other church members, the other ones who have received the word and been baptized, and you're supposed to, you're supposed to want to associate with them, and you're, you're want, you want to talk with them, you want to, to, to love them, to pray for them. Um, your duty as a church member includes your looking out and loving your other fellow church members. What does this look like? Well, subjecting yourselves in humility to one another, being ready to forgive. That's one of those phrases we say really quickly, but that's really hard to do, isn't that? Are you ready to forgive another church member? Um, That should be our attitude. Avoiding gossip and slander. Uh, The list could go on, but these are duties of a church member. And remember, your duty is also to keep the church pure and to keep the church clean. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, no unclean thing was to come into the, into the Garden of Eden. The same thing with the Jerusalem temple. Nothing unclean was to come in. And so with the church, nothing unclean should come into the church. And sometimes when a member, sometimes we all fall into sin. But there's a difference between falling into sin and repenting and practicing and walking in that unrepentantly. And so, as a church member, one of your duties is to help to keep the church clean. And sometimes when in a lifestyle of practicing sin goes unrepented, we need to, the church needs to confront that person and to tell them to repent. And if they don't listen, then excommunication is a duty of the church as a whole to do. And so as a church member, remember to keep the church pure. And the goal, obviously, is to restore the individual. Uh, it's not just punitive. We want to restore that individual. And at Trinity, we've had numerous people who have been excommunicated and brought back in, actually, restored. It's a, it doesn't always happen. Um, we have one who was excommunicated twice and restored twice. And it's, I see him every Sunday. What a blessing that they're there. And so that is the goal of excommunication. And so speaking of membership, remember, it is only because of God's grace that you have been added to the membership of a church. And so see church membership as a result of the grace of God to you that you've been given a church family such as this. So we see that there were added to the body of believers 3,000 souls. And so we should add those who have received the word and been baptized to our local churches. Okay, Um, so let's look at our text here because the next four points are all dependent on a certain phrase. So in verse... 42, it says, this is my ESV. You probably all have the NSAV. But, and they devoted themselves to, and then there's four things that they devoted themselves to. So that, that verb, devoted themselves, it's also, I don't know if you know this, there's a translation called the ASV. It's really old, but sometimes it gets it really well. They put it as continued steadfastly, okay? That's another way of saying the same thing. And this verb has a middle voice in the Greek, okay? The middle voice means that the subject, the one doing it, 
does it in such a way that emphasizes their own participation in it, okay? So you could say, who's the subject here? Who's the one acting? What's the people who received the word and they were baptized and they were added, okay? So that's the subject, and they are devoting themselves. They are, in a sense, acting um, with a vested interest. Does that make sense? Um, so these people devote themselves as something that they're doing, okay? They're not just devoting themselves to someone, to Bob and Larry doing these things, but they are themselves. Um, I guess that was a VeggieTales reference, but okay, subconscious. Um, so what did they devote themselves to? Teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. So let's talk briefly about those four things. In verse 42, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is one of the marks of the early church, and it should be a mark of this church and every true church of Jesus Christ. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? If you think about these four things, they're all things that Jesus taught his apostles, and then therefore they taught the church, right? Um, Jesus taught many things to his disciples, and the apostles' teaching would have been reflecting and commenting upon Jesus' teaching. And if you read the New Testament books, by the way, what is the apostles' teaching but the New Testament, right? Um, it's at least what we have of it. That is the, basically, the teachings of Jesus apply to different contexts. Um, for example, the book of James is, a many people think, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, um, applying it to a different context. And so that's what the apostles' teaching is. And think about it, 3,000 people are added, right? They want to be taught now. So the apostles were very busy. And this is one of the reasons why the deacons are brought in later in Acts. Um, just there's an influx of so many people into the church. Um, so how can we access the teaching of the apostles? Just read your New Testament, brothers and sisters. But Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words. Right, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we need to follow the apostles' teaching. We need to follow the deposit of um, the, the deposit, the good deposit entrusted to us, and the pattern of sound words. And where, what is a really good summary of the apostles' teaching? <laughs> What's the apostles' creed? or also the Nicene Creed, or the Athanasian Creed. Um, Hercules Collins, I mentioned him this morning, in the back of his catechism, he had those three creeds in the back. I'm not sure actually about the Apostles' Creed, but he at least has the Nicene and the Athanasian Creed. So if you want to study as a church member the Apostles' teaching in a good summary form, a creed, study the Apostles' Creed, study the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. You're not wasting your time. And if every member is well um, understands those the basic teaching of the apostles, that's going to really help the church, especially in times of controversy, doctrinal controversy. If everyone is well taught, um, which I sure, I'm sure you guys are, then that could be very helpful. And so, learn and repeat the creeds of the church. A lot of our Reformed brothers actually say the creeds during their worship services. Um, you know, it's a matter of preference, but you can see why they're doing that. Also, if they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they are submitting themselves to the teaching authority above them, right? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're listening to them. They're submitting them themselves to the doctrine of the apostles. And so in the church, brothers and sisters, you need to submit yourselves to your pastor's teaching as far as he is faithful and loyal to the word of God and the apostles' teaching. 
So those who received the word devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and so should we. All right, let's move on to the fourth thing, which is fellowship, fellowship. Um, This is also in verse 42, and the Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia. You've heard that before? It's a pretty well-known Greek word, um, koinonia. It, It can mean close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Um, other ways you, you could also translate it as communion or maybe association. Maybe that's a little bit not of a strong enough word, but you get the idea. So briefly, let's consider what fellowship is um, and how the New Testament church practiced it. And we, we need to have fellowship with one another. Um, some people argue that fellowship is strictly the sharing of possessions that happens later in this passage. Um, I think it's, it's bigger. It's a bigger umbrella term for all these things, right? The giving to the poor brothers and sisters in the church, um, and, and I'll get into that. So what is Christian fellowship? Uh, our confession has a whole chapter on it, chapter 27. And they make a re- the confession makes a very important point. Fellowship begins with our union to Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of fellowship. John says in 1 John 1, 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you have fellowship with God, with Jesus Christ, then you should have fellowship with one another, right? So that's the direction in which it flows. And you could really apply that to your life. If you're struggling to love another brother or sister in the church, have you considered, first of all, your union with Jesus Christ and their union with Jesus Christ? It's something good to consider um, before you just get really angry at them, right? One of the marks of a true Christian is that they love other Christians. First um, John 3.14 says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And so fellowship includes loving the brothers because God has loved us. Now, a lot of people talk about fellowship like it's t- two Christians talking about a sports game or the weather or politics, or as my old youth group leader, when two guys were wrestling in youth group, he called it physical fellowship. Um, that's not what this is talking about because that's common to the world. You could go to your work. You know, my, uh, I am a teacher and the guy next door is a Notre Dame fan and I could talk to him about the football game that happened on Friday night. That's not Christian fellowship, right? That's not what that's talking about. Now, are those things bad? Of course not. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Christian fellowship. Um, so what makes fellowship in the context of a local church so special? Uh, my old pastor, Earl Blackburn, he wrote this. He has a book called Jesus Loved the Church and So Should You. It's a great book. Um, he said, fellowship is the shared heart and life with one another in the things of the Lord Jesus and his word. I think that's a good summary definition of fellowship. And so we see here that the believers devoted themselves to fellowship, which entails something, that they were there when the church gathered if, they, if you actually devote yourself or you continue steadfastly in the fellowship, you can't do that if you're gone from church. If you've abandoned the public meetings of the church or you've neglected them, you cannot participate in fellowship. And this is an issue in our day, especially since 2020, that is a really big issue. Um, the abandonment of church, uh, being with the church and the, the Lord's Day and things like that. So do not neglect the public worship. Because if you do, we'll talk, there's many things. First of all, it is a sin 
unless you're providentially hindered. If you're skipping church for who knows whatever reason, that is a sin, first of all. You're breaking the fourth commandment, um, but you're also missing out on all the privileges of church membership, the Lord's Supper, um, the preaching of the word, and so on. And there's a passage in Hebrews 10, you all know this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's part of fellowship right there. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So failing to faithfully attend church is a sin. And it's a sign of backsliding, isn't it? When someone stops attending the church services, you start to get worried, don't you? It's a sign that maybe something's not quite right. Uh, We could apply this in many ways, but maybe some more specific concerns. When someone sends their kid off to college, that, and that person says is a, is a true Christian, a believer, a pattern that at least I've seen is that church attendance is not prioritized. And that young person, that's, that's a, that can lead to really bad things, to backsliding and even apostasy. Not that the cause is strictly only because they're not going to church. Um, there's something in their heart. Also, um, sports is another major reason why people skip church. Um, would you rather be staying in church and singing praise God from all whom blessings flow or would you rather be at your kid's sports game yelling at the referee? I mean, what's the comparison here? It, there's no comparison. Um, we need to be here. And so neglecting the public worship is very serious. Now, that's the negative side of it. Let's look at it positively um, very quickly. Let us prize the public worship which includes the fellowship with the saints. It's not just enough to say how dangerous it is to not be here, but how amazing it is to be here. Um, if you want a, a passage to meditate on, read Psalm 95, 6 or 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Read the Psalms. There's many Psalms that talk about the gathering of God's people together and how wonderful it really is. And so we see in our passage that those who receive the word devoted themselves to the fellowship, and so should we. There's a lot more we could say, but hopefully that's some, some food for thought. Okay, number five, um, we see here that the Lord's Supper is mentioned in verse 42. It's mentioned as the breaking of bread, the breaking of the bread. And there's good people on both sides. Some say this refers to just eating meals together. Other people argue that it refers more technically to the Lord's Supper, which is a kind of meal. And I, like, I lean definitely towards the Lord's Supper position. I think the breaking of the bread is a, uh, a phrase that appears in the New Testament. Um, but just know that there are good people on both sides of this. Regardless, if, if this passage doesn't teach that they did the Lord's Supper, it is definitely taught in the rest of the New Testament. that It's a mark of the church. Um, so first of all, think of the phrase, the breaking of the bread. In the Lord's Supper, we break the bread. What does that symbolize? It's the breaking of Jesus' body, right? Um, and, it, and that phrase encapsulates the wine as well, the, the blood of Jesus as well. And so one thing that the early church devoted themselves to was the supper. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful means of grace. Remember, if you're absent from the church worship, you're also absent from this. And that's a serious thing. Um, it's, a, it's a covenant meal. Your soul is refreshed and renewed in the promises of the gospel as you partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for those who belong to the new covenant. Those who receive the word and were baptized and were added, those are the ones who partake of the, of the breaking of the bread. 
And so if you are in Christ, the supper is yours as a believer in the context of the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. And as you partake of the bread and the wine, they're symbols of the body and blood of Christ, and God declares to you through these that your sins are forgiven. Um, It also helps with church fellowship, does it not? Because we all take together, right? Um, Paul talks about those in the Corinthian church somewhere eating of it and excluding others, and that, that kills fellowship right there. Um, and so, with those things in mind, I exhort you to not neglect or miss out on the Lord's Supper. And here's some final thoughts on this point. Remember that the Israelites partook of the Passover with their bags packed. They were ready to go. And so it is with us. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we eat of the Lord's Supper with eagerness and excitement until that day when we eat with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, my pastor, Sam, he calls the Lord's Supper a rehearsal dinner <laughs> uh, because it's, we are rehearsing that day when we will eat and drink with Jesus Christ in his Father's kingdom. And so when the church worships together, when they partake of the Lord's Supper together, we commune with our risen Lord and we are drawn closer into our union with Christ. So, brothers and sisters, prize the Lord's Supper. Don't miss out. This is one of the greatest blessings of the church. So those who received the word devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and so should we. And then finally, the sixth thing is the prayers. The prayers. See that in verse 42? It says the, the church devoted themselves to the prayers. Now that word is in plural. It's not just prayer, but it's the prayers. Okay? Um, so, What could these prayers be? Well, think about it. What prayers did they have access to to learn how to pray uh, (laughs) the Lord's Prayer? Um, But also they had the the Old Testament. They had the the Psalms and many other prayers in the Old Testament. So we could think that reasonably these things were models for the early church and their prayers. And if we read the book of Acts, one of the marks of the early church was prayer. The church prays, and we need to pray and make sure prayer is a very common thing in our assemblies. Um, in, after the ascension, the uh, apostles go and they, they pray. They devote themselves to prayer. Um, when they're trying to choose a new apostle, Matthias, um, they pray, it says. Um, after persecution arises against the church, what do they do? They pray for boldness. When they're trying to decide about who to select as deacons, they pray. When the apostles hear that many in Samaria had been saved, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You go through the book of Acts and you'll just see how much prayer is a central theme of the church and what they do. And this is not only just public prayer, but it's also private prayer. Um, If you've ever wondered, you know, I, I really can't do public prayer that well. Well, how well is your private prayer? Because one will help the other. Um, in many ways, seeing a man or anyone praying publicly, you'll kind of know how they pray privately, right? And so I'd encourage you, if you are someone who prays publicly, to work on your private prayers. Um, and, and public prayers in the church are a wonderful blessing. Uh, what does Paul say to the Thessalonians? He says, brothers, pray for us. This includes praying for your pastor, praying for your deacons, pray for yourselves, pray for your boldness. When you have a decision to make as a church, pray. When you have a ministry opportunity, pray. Pray for missionaries. Pray that the Spirit would work through the preaching. And so what happens when we neglect prayer, though? Um, What's the cause 
uh, of, of many, it is the cause of many difficulties. Let's listen to a quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, what is the cause of most backsliding? I believe as a general rule, one of the chief causes is neglect of private prayer. You may be very sure men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. The early church devoted themselves to the prayers. And you should too. If you have neglected prayer, you need to, you need to continue steadfastly in the prayers, both in your private prayers and to attend and to, to, to pray along with those who pray in the church. Um, it's a very serious things. And what, what's one of the reasons why we find prayer so difficult? Once, if you found yourself not praying for a long time, it's probably because you don't feel the need to. You have forgotten your dependence upon God and the wickedness of your own heart. And so remember that you need prayer. God actually has ordained prayer as the very means by which to bless you. And so you need to take prayer seriously, especially in the context of the local church. And so those who received the word devoted themselves to the prayers, and so should we. And so we've looked at some of the, the marks of the early church in Jerusalem, principles that abide in every true church, and things that we should devote ourselves to. And if, if you need to be reminded of some of these things, be reminded, and pray that the Lord would help you grow in some of these areas. And so I hope this has been a helpful review for some of you, maybe some new things for some of you, and maybe a reminder for others. And so I pray for you guys um, every week, actually, and I pray that the Lord would bless your church here in Lancaster. So thank you.